You're listening to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel, produced by the broadcast professionals of the Florida Bar. Welcome to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by Legal Fuel, the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbury. I'm a Senior Practice Management Advisor at the Bar and one of the hosts of the show, which is being recorded from our home offices in Tallahassee, Florida. Hello, I'm Carla Eckhart. I'm a Practice Management Advisor at the Florida Bar and a co-host of today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. So just like everything else last year, the court reporting and captioning industry had to pivot to keep going during the pandemic. Court reporters have long played a crucial role in the legal world, but there's a lot more to this industry than quietly recording testimony for the record. So many of our listeners are solos and new attorneys. So Carla and I like to explore and demystify as many topics as we can to help them in their practices. So joining us today to discuss the court reporter's role and the state of the industry is Christine Phipps. Christine is a registered professional reporter, the president of Phipps Reporting Incorporated, and the current president of the National Court Reporters Association. She received her degree in court reporting from Broward State College and spent the next two years of her career as an official court reporter. She went on uh, another 15 years traveling around the world as a freelance court reporter. Christine then opened her own court reporting and litigation support agency, Phipps Recording. In addition to reporting, she is also an Eclipse trainer and has served as chair of the NCRA's technology and freelance committees. Christine has received numerous awards, including the 2014 Most Enterprising Woman of the Year, and her company has made the Inc. 5000 list every year since 2014. Welcome to the show, Christine. Thank you so much for having me and having giving me this opportunity to speak to your members. I really appreciate it. So, Christine, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your path from court reporter to business owner and now president of the Industries Association. Well, actually, um, as a kid, I grew up in an Italian restaurant. Grandparents emigrated here from Italy. And um, so I grew up, I've been working since the age of 10, started off rolling dough in the, in the kitchen after school. Um, but anyway, um, I was in corporate banking um, and I then went back to school to finish my court reporting career. I just love the idea of court reporting. I'm so glad I did. It was the best decision I ever made in my life. Um, and I journeyed through court reporting. And eventually um, when you start having ideas about how operations should run when you are part of working at a place, that's probably a good sign that it's time that you open your own business, carry forward your own vision. And so that's basically what I did. And then my service to NCRA, um, I feel like this career has been so rewarding. I've made, so I've, I've been a single mom um, most of my career. My kids are, my oldest is 31. And that little 22 key machine has afforded me great opportunities, lots of opportunities to meet all kinds of um, very impressive people, senators, and I've reported a president along the way. 
and um, just things that I just never would have had the opportunity had I stayed in that banking career. And so I serve in CRA to give back so that I can make sure that this profession is here and better for all those that come after me. Very fascinating career path. And, and I'm really glad that you're on here today because I think you'll be a, a very good resource for a lot of our listeners. So just to give you some background, a lot of our listeners are new uh, lawyers, a lot of young new lawyers or lawyers who have been practicing for a long time but are now going out on their own. And they're also solo small firms. So a lot of times they've never uh, procured the services of a court reporter. So we want to go back and sort of start with the basics. So our first question to you is very simple. How does one become a court reporter? Well, um, I went to college for it. Um, and there are people that I have an associate's degree. There are other people that have bachelor's degrees in court reporting, but it's not required. So it's um, you can go to a technical school and just learn to be proficient because in many ways, court reporting is kind of like playing the piano. I don't play the piano. I wish I did because having my daughter was classically trained and to see the art of hands on a piano, the, the um, structure is very similar to that of court reporting. And so it's acquiring a skill. Um, you know, you can become an engineer and still get C's in certain classes and still graduate and become that. For court reporting, you know, some people will learn to run the 50-yard dash in four seconds, um, you know, without any training. And then some people will just never get there. And so court reporting, learning to write at 225 plus words per minute, um, you know, is just a skill that, you know, you have to attain. So there are some people that go to school for it and it takes them a long time to get through. I've had friends that have spent seven years in school um, trying to get to that 225 level. And then I know people that have spent a year actually attain, attaining that level. And, um, you know, it just comes naturally for some people, I guess, kind of like being musically inclined can come natural to some people. Um, so it's just a lot of practice. And, you know, and, and even though you become a court reporter and you technically can go out and do the job, it still takes years and years of constant practice and development of that school. I have court reporters that work for me that have been practicing for 35 years. But when they go into a big trial, they still spend a lot of time practicing and gearing up for that trial. It's kind of like preparing for a race. Um, let's say that you were an Olympian. Um, you definitely would train for that. And so the court reporters actually do things very similar to hone up for the next day because Obviously, there are levels of proceedings. Some are very complex. Um, you know, some are obviously, you know, much more simplistic. You know, a, a car accident, you know, and a simple pip injury suit is much less invasive than going to take a software engineer that worked for Apple and you're talking about, you know, intellectual property vastly different um, levels of uh, not only complexity, but stressors on the quarter, you know, where the silent person in the room, so to speak, still taking in everything. And, you know, it's a lot of pressure to write down every single syllable of everything that's being said in, a, in words that we don't necessarily know, right? Because the, the English language and the nuances to particular professions of experts that we may take the testimony down of, um, of course, there's going to be words we never heard of 
but we write syllabically. And so then we're able to go back and research after. But then there's tips in there about how to be a better um, partner as a lawyer with the court reporter. So after you've mastered the skill, which is, you said, I'm picturing that like playing a piano. That's a good analogy. Um, is there an exam? And in the state of Florida, do you have to be certified to be a court reporter in a court proceeding? So um, each state is different. So in 25 of the 50 states, there is no certification required. Florida happens to be one of them. It's something that actually really does need to change. In Florida, a court reporter does not have to be, not only do they not have to be certified, they don't have to be licensed either. So when you go in to get your hair cut, you'll see a license next to the mirror for that beautician or barber, <laughs> as the case may be. But for a court reporter, you need nothing. Wow. So anybody could just pick up that machine and just write. We have had licensure on the books for 30 years, but um, we have not been able, as the Florida Court Reporters Association has not been able to get anybody to house it. We were pretty close about five years ago to the Florida Bar housing it, um, much like the Florida Bar has um, taken on the paralegals. Mm-hmm. really want them to take on the court reporters as well, because it, I mean, we're, we have such a great responsibility. I mean, I hold the record in my hands, literally, you know, and, and those words are the difference between somebody getting life or death, a mother losing her children, or, you know, whatever the ramifications are for a company that's involved in some kind of litigation. I mean, the, the words are just so important and to get them all right. And, um, that's just something that really needs to change because what it's created is this kind of, it's actually referred to among my industry, um, as Florida can be the wild, wild West when it comes mm-hmm. because anything goes and we're one of the bigger States for litigation, like Texas, California, New York, those are also heavy litigation states as well, like Florida is, particularly in the South Florida area. Um, and yet we're the state that doesn't have, Texas and California has the heaviest duty licensure requirements and Florida has none. So that's important to understand. You bring up a good point because um, when an industry is asking for more regulation, they want to be regulated. I, that's a good sign. Um, and yeah, you're right. Well, it, it adds value to those that are more skilled, too. I mean, if, if you can't tell who's skilled and who isn't by a particular certification or license, I mean, like she said, wild, wild west. Well, the thing is, too, is that court reporting is defined by the Florida legislature as three different methods. You have stenography, which is what I do. And so I write syllabically and take down every syllable of everything that's said. There's voice writers. Voice writers are people that, instead of having the machine, they actually have a mask over their nose and their mouth. They speak into it. And now they can speak phonetically and they can shorten up phrases by just saying a sound and it will actually come out in their, but they're, it will come out on their computer or their cat software. But the thing is, is that they are addressing every syllable as it is spoken. But the legislature also includes recording. And that's because when I started out court reporting and long, actually long before I was reporting, which has been 30 years ago, there was audio that's, that exists in some of the courtrooms. And particularly, it was always like in juvenile proceedings, things like that, that are never transcribed. And those, those kinds of proceedings are kept confidential. 
But what's happened recently within the last 10 years or so is um, because there are no rules, audio recordings are being used by freelance firms, freelance court reporting firms. And so when a lawyer books a deposition, a lawyer books a deposition or a hearing with a firm, that firm may send out somebody to just sit there and record it. And they don't know. And that, and that's a huge problem. So I've been all over the state trying to educate lawyers about this very thing because they need to be informed about what it is that they are choosing to hire. Because what's happening is because court reporters, I mean, NCRA is a 121-year-old association. The stenographer has been around for more than 100 years. And so there is a general expectation by consumers, by your bar members, that it is going to be a stenographer that shows up because that's what's been showing up for 60, 70 years, you know, or however long depositions have been being booked. And so when you have firms that are just sending something else without, uh, there's, without informing the client of what you're doing or the ramifications and people understanding the perils of using audio, it seems like a real... <laughs> It seems like it's it's amazing to me that it even goes on in the legal industry because you know all these years of doing medical malpractice type work and you know you talk about informed consent a duty to inform you think about you know how the law has changed with regards to things like taking your automobile in to have it serviced it used to be that you could bring that automobile in you'd think it was a couple hundred bucks and you'd walk out with a $2000 bill when you showed up to pick up the car but the law changed and that's the great thing about the law is that it evolves and it protects the consumers and that's what the general population doesn't understand what's so great about the legal community because you know we we change things for the better so to have this going on without this informed consent and so then what happens is they get back transcripts that are bad, that, that have inaudibles, because it's when you're not responsible for, we can have conversation here. And, you know, and there was a moment ago where we cross-talk by accident. We mm-hmm. don't tend to do that, but that's the nature of people speaking. Right. And you can understand everything that I'm saying, but there's a difference between understanding what people are saying and then being responsible for every single word because you can't leave anything out. And then there is distinguishing an audio between, you know, we're three females on here. We all can sound similar. We think as we're talking to each other, we sound starkly different, but to right. put an audio recording, we start to sound very similar. And then you get a group of people and who's objecting. And then right. people yeah. that intentionally talk low. I've, I've been in trials where people have intentionally talked low so that the other side couldn't hear them and wouldn't wouldn't be able to object, and then, you know, the, just the perils of all that. I've had witnesses that have spoken low, purposely. Um, mm-hmm. They d- intentionally don't want other people in the room, or they're trying to get around getting it on the record. I don't know what they're trying to avoiding perjury, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, things like that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the rules. So, um, because. W- Carla talked about it. We have a lot of um, solos and new attorneys. So how does a um, an attorney know? Does 
a court reporter have to be in all proceedings? Like you said, juvenile used to just be an audio. I know that in the DCA, they just run uh, an audio recording. Um, So when is a Florida attorney required to engage the services of a court reporter, whether they're going to court or they're doing a deposition? So on the civil side of Florida courts, there, there is no court reporter. And so they have to hire a court reporter if they want to have those proceedings documented. Now, I have seen over the years, because obviously that's a choice when you're going into a courtroom in a civil proceeding. And I've seen that. Um, I've seen sometimes where necessarily a lawyer doesn't care about whether they have a record for those proceedings, but sometimes it is just to document behavior, mm-hmm. act a little bit differently when everybody in the room acts a little bit differently when they know that their words are being documented and maybe used or recited later by others. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, people want to make a record, you know, sometimes people are making a record and, you know, saying people are shouting in the room and they're not really shouting, but you know, the record speaks flat. It's just Mm -hmm. a page. And so you could say all kinds of things. Um, so definitely for the civil proceedings, um, you're hiring a, you call a court reporting firm and they will send a court reporter in to cover those proceedings. And then of course, for depositions, um, we do a lot of work for the state of Florida. So we're recording um, all kinds of official type meetings, um, like the board of dentistry, the board of medicine, um, all the different boards. That's a lot of our work in the Tallahassee area. And um, although it spreads throughout the state because those meetings. Um, So it could be any kind of proceedings. And actually, even sometimes we get called in to document like a homeowners association. I mean, it could be anything. Rooms of of big corporations, not as popular because they don't necessarily want things documented. But every once in a while, there's. Mm -hmm. And so are you saying like if it's a criminal proceeding, then the court is going to be providing the court reporter. That will be at their expense. Yes. Yeah. But there are, there have been times where we are still asked to go in and report a criminal proceeding because sometimes the court systems and dealing with the audio, because, you know, that's a whole separate thing with using audio because somebody's supposed to be there to monitor it, you know, accidentally, sometimes it, the recording doesn't get turned on. Um, it do, They don't realize it didn't come out. You're still dealing with the acoustics and rooms, people not near microphones. And, you know, when you're not responsible for every syllable, you don't realize that somebody has stepped away from a microphone. So sometimes like we'll have in a, let's say if there's a big civil case going on and, and there was, um, it was a car accident, somebody's at fault. And then they're, they're being brought in for, to address that ticket. It could be just as simple as a ticket, or maybe they were charged with that accident. So oftentimes we will have the civil attorneys um, hire us to go in and stenographically make a record of that criminal proceeding that is happening. And they don't want to go through the courts and deal with their audio system per se. Some courts do have, so there is a rule by the Supreme Court that for um, capital punishment, Mm -hmm. when those kinds of cases go to trial, there's actually a rule that they have a right to have a real-time court reporter. So not just even a court reporter, but they have the right to have real-time, which real-time means that 
it's like captioning on your TV, which also is stenographers. We do captioning for live proceedings for those that are have hearing challenges that maybe um, encounter that late in life that do not do sign language. But real time is like getting that caption, but you're getting the whole transcript all day long and you can interact with it. It, it really appears on your iPad. We usually hand wow. iPads actually. And so it's really fantastic. It's a game changer because you can literally walk around the courtroom and try a case with testimony in your hand and go up sidebar and talk to the judge and flip back. the yeah. And they said this and, so different how the technology has evolved. And we want to, we're going to get into, we have some questions for you about the technology. Carla, let's jump into kind of the rapid fire breaking down the process. Go ahead. All right. So we like to ask these questions because new attorneys often assume that everyone knows the answer, even that they know the answer, that it's obvious. Um, so they never ask. So we're mm-hmm. going to ask you. Um, so <laughs> here we go. We're just going to jump into it. Is the expense of a court reporter shared by both parties? Um, no. Sometimes it is, though. So if somebody books a deposition or they book us to go into a hearing, then they're responsible for the appearance fee. Either side could order the transcript. Whoever orders, they pay for the what we call the original in one. Um, because it, they call it original one because the lawyer would take the copy, the one, and the original used to be filed with the court. A little, it's changed a little bit now, but we still call it that. And the other side would order a copy. Whoever orders the original, the court reporter has a duty to notify all parties that the original has been ordered and do they want a copy? Because, and as long as the counsel has responded that they do want to order a copy, it's then incumbent upon the court reporter, the court reporting firm to make sure everything is delivered to all the parties at the same time further enhanced by at least we have electronic capability to ensure an email all goes out to all parties at the same time. But it used to be, used to be a challenge with delivering things by UPS. But in trial proceedings, that's usually where I see a splitting of the cost. So sometimes both parties will agree to hire a certain court reporter or the, and so they will agree to split the appearance fee if you ever wanted to do that, you just let the court reporting court reporting firm know, and they will divide that appearance fee in half and charge each to each side. So there's an appearance fee, and then you you do the original in one. Is the printed transcript an additional cost, and is it based on length? Tell us a little bit more about that. So no, the printed, it doesn't matter whether you get it printed or you're receiving it electronically, generally speaking. And, and I don't really see that in, you know, in all the rate sheets and things that I review. So that's usually, there's no difference. Mm-hmm. Firm in particular, we actually, if you do not um, print a transcript, um, we actually plant a tree in your firm's name. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Giving back to national forests. Um, we're a green uh, certified green business. Um, so no, but so we actually put in preferences. So that's another important thing too, is that you should communicate with the court reporting firm that you're working with, or even if you're just going to be, like I have a big firm. So even if you're not my client, you're probably going to be crossing on the other side as an opposing counsel. And you should put your preferences on file. And so literally for my firm, they have to, when a lawyer orders a transcript, they have to go into their preferences and they have to look, email to, you know, Sally and Doug and Bob along with me 
on these types of cases, like a lot marital law, we get a lot of, they always want things printed. Um, however, they have to practice in marital law. There's something about requiring a physical transcript being filed. So we usually are printing for that. So you just put your preferences on, on file. DOA, okay. is, those, are fi- those are printed and then filed at DOA in Tallahassee. So just put your preferences on file. Now, is it best to book a conference room and reporter at the court reporting business, so at Phipps Reporting, or can I have a court reporter come to my conference room? And is there a cost benefit to having them come to me or me go to them? So you have to, the court reporting firm that you're dealing with, you have to ask them if they charge for conference rooms. So for my particular firm, um, we tell we tell lawyers if they do not they, if they do not want to hold proceedings at their office, which oftentimes there is, there are objections uh, to holding things at counsel's office because either sometimes that counsel is then distracted, um, you know, or they have people going in and it's a little too convenient for them, you know, and depending on how adversarial the case is, some just sometimes they just won't agree to that. And it's kind of strange because in, I've noticed in certain jurisdictions throughout Florida, like Broward County, I think it just there's just a long history of only booking things at court reporting offices. Mm-hmm. See it at lawyer offices, and then but then there are other parts of the state like Orlando where it is booked in counsel's office. So it's interesting that there's a change depending on the region, but um, so some we don't charge for booking at a conference room. We have we have ele- I have eleven corporate offices in every major city in Florida, wow. but say you needed to be in Winter Garden um, and you couldn't do it in Orlando. We wouldn't charge a conference room, but that doesn't mean that everybody does that. So there are some that may charge for the conference room. So you should ask up front. And because we handle things all over the country. You have to, I say, let us do it because it's easier. We have the resources. We know the questions to ask. Make sure that the room is set up because things, usually when you book something out of state, all of a sudden everybody has the, this is pre-pandemic, everybody has the best intentions that they're going to show up in New Jersey. And then all of a sudden things change and now they need to attend via video conference or they need a phone set up. And so we just plan for all of those scenarios at the outset. So I would say it's better, especially depending on the type of firm that you're using. If they're equipped to handle that, then that's great. Like my firm is, but you could have a really small firm that maybe isn't equipped to handle it. So it depends. Mm-hmm. So is an attorney responsible for a court reporter's travel time or let's say um, there's motion calendar and the court reporter arrives at nine, but the actual proceeding for their client doesn't start until 1145? Um, Is there a cost to their being uh, waiting or on hold for that particular client? So throughout Florida... Um, it just so happens that, generally speaking, we really don't charge travel charges, except for up in the Panhandle area. Um, just some of those really remote places like Defuniac Springs. So it's just so far away from Pensacola or Tallahassee. It is like it is just at one of the most inconvenient spots. The Florida Keys, Key West, is a very inconvenient spot. However, mm-hmm. 
still find court reporters that are willing to go down and spend the weekend in the Keys versus mm-hmm. Funiac Springs. <laughs> That's a good point. I have to, I have, yeah, I'm from Pensacola. So I, I've spent more time of my life at anchor court reporting than you would imagine as in all different kinds of capacities. But it also, a lot of our solos and it's new, but I think so many people are now virtual uh, that they didn't expect to become virtual practices. So um, Anchor did everything. Like I remember being there even for um, family law mediations to, because the small firm or it was adversarial. So no, I won't come to your turf and you, you know, those kind yeah. of things. But to where we'd show up and the husband and wife were in different rooms. And so the mediators moving back and forth between the rooms, the court reporter's not there for that. But then if they'd hammered out an agreement, then you could call the court reporter right in. So it, it worked out really well. And some small firms or virtual, they had no conference room. So they were, you know, more dependent on that. And so they did a great job of that. Um, if you need uh, the video depositions, do all court reporters, do you have to come into the office? Is there equipment that you take to places for that? Tell us a little bit about video So video can vary from firm to firm. So we, my firm has, we have our own in-house video department. They're on staff, they're employees of mine. We have a whole video production facility in West Palm Beach. So um, we have, and, and I like for our videographers to be employees because we supply them state of the art equipment. So when you Now, there are areas because obviously Florida is a big state and you have these little cities. And so then we'll use what are called overflow or freelance um, videographers to cover our things. But then when we use those people, we give them a set of guidelines and criteria that we expect them to follow, um, right, expectations. And But sometimes you have no control over what equipment they are using and how state-of-the-art is it is. So that's why I like to use our in-house videographers. But yes, they, um, they definitely travel to wherever it is that you need to be, just like the court reporter does. And we have really found, and you know, that's why we have evolved. My firm has evolved. I started off with court reporting as my base because I'm a court reporter. Mm-hmm. And that's what I knew best. And it took me a long time before I opened up videography because, believe it or not, there is a whole lot more to than just pressing record on a video camera. It's actually very complex. And um, so it took us a long time before we did open that up. And that's why we have process serving because it's kind of, it's easier, I think, for the firms are very busy or you can have a small solo practitioner firm that they're trying to handle more duties than just, you know, being able to maybe a lawyer being able to just concentrate on practicing law. You know, they're actually setting depositions themselves sometimes. Um, So it's easier to just make one phone call. And it's also easier down the road. Like, let's say you don't order those things, you know, and it's now two, three years later and the case is going to trial. It's much easier to be able to call that same firm that you're dealing with all the time and place your order then. While we're on the topic of technology, um, how have the methods or or certain practices and the technology changed over the years? And do court reporters still have to know how to do written shorthand? Mm. Um, So it has vastly, vastly changed over the years. So no, court reporters do not have to know how to do shorthand. And actually, that's becoming very much a lost art. That was known as pen writing. So actually the National Court Reporters Association started out as pen writing and it then evolved into stenographers, but more than a hundred years ago. So it was very, very early on. 
There actually are some pen writers that still exist in the state of Florida. There's maybe three or four or so. Um, there's some I know of in West Virginia, and I'm sure there's some that are sprinkled throughout the country. Um, but no, so they do not have to know how to do that at all. Well, I'm fascinated because it's like a code. It's like a whole language that, uh, and you guys speak several because of the different techniques. So in preparation for our podcast, when I was doing some research, I saw photos of what actually comes out of the court reporter's key device. And it is completely incomprehensible to the non-initiated. Um, can you explain to our listeners what the court reporter is actually rapidly typing during a trial? And my my. Uh, connecting question is, are you guys able to read that just like it's regular printed word for when the judge says, uh, read that testimony back to the court? Oh, absolutely. So what you have is when you have a keyboard, you actually have eight keys, four on the top, four on the bottom, and same thing on this hand. And then you have four keys down here. So basically, even though it's eight keys, there's combinations of those letters that form the whole alphabet on this hand. All the consonants for the alphabet are on this hand, and almost all of them are on this hand as well. Even though it's eight letters, it makes up the 20 letters of... And Christine is gesturing with her left and right hand. Our listeners oh, can't right. see your hand. <laughs> That's right. I forget we're not on video. Um, so the bottom on my thumbs are vowels. And so I start off with the letter. So like cat, I don't have... I don't need to write K-R for C. I just write K-A-T and it's cat. But I can also write T-P for an F and an R. And then an E-U is an I for me. And then P-L-T is an M-T. And that is F-R-I-M-T. And that means one stroke, one depression. I can depress all those letters. And that will come out from time to time. So I can write combinations of letters that will come out with whole phrases. Um, you know, because believe it or not, there's there's lots of phrases that we say all the time. Do you recall? I don't recall. I don't know. Um, those things are all written in just one stroke. I don't know. It's just Y-O-N. Um, but we all can write a little bit differently because we we learn a basic of what those letters mean. But there's different types of theories, kind of like there. It's kind of like different dialects and language for for Spanish. Um, we all write a little bit differently. Some court reporters, I would not be able to read their notes. Um, some wouldn't be able to read mine, but, um, but that's basically how it's done. Phonetically, we're writing sounds. So that's why we can write, you know, well, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious would have to be soup with an asterisk. <laughs> and I'll go in and enter that in my dictionary when I'm out on that big long word and I won't spend my time trying to stroke all those syllables out. But does that mean that if you are the one keying it in, you will have to be the one that creates the transcript for us non-steno uh, readers? Well, you know, actually, that's a great question. So when I am writing, I'm hooked up to my computer. And so I have a dictionary built. And so it really basically everything tra um, translates. So as a court reporter, I would say for most of my career, I've written at least with 98% accuracy. When I became a real-time stenographer, I write at 99.5 or better. Um, so that means that virtually everything is coming out and then it's just a matter of proofreading pretty much. So then we have what's called scopus in our industry. 
And so Scopus will work alongside court reporters. So then I would send the Scopus my file and they would go through and they would put all those edits in that need to be done. And then it would come back to me and I would be the last set of eyes and I would just proofread it and finalize it and send it out. And actually it's something I look for in my court reporters that they do use um, people to assist them in getting their transcripts out because you don't know what you don't know. You know, we're coming across all these different types of words and testimony. And so two eyes on something I think um, produces a better ultimate product. So, um, but that's basically how it's done. It really is fascinating um, to watch the whole process with this, you know, the machine and the screens. So for our listeners, if you haven't done it already, if you're interested, I highly recommend you Google it because it is fascinating. Mm -hmm. I, I really, I was blown away. I had no idea. And then I Googled it and I went down the rabbit hole. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> it's so true. You know, I do it, but I still walk into a courtroom and my eyes are glued to the stenographer right. writing. And I'm actually, I'm trying to follow their hands because I know what they're stroking. So I'm like, oh, let's see how she's writing. She's yeah. on top of them or is she trailing a sentence behind? No, it's, it, it really is a fascinating, and I don't know if anyone's been watching the procedures going on in Congress, but there's one that she literally has it hanging off her neck and she's walking around. I mean, <laughs> I mean, talk about walking and chewing gum at the same time. That is a skill. That's impressive. It's, it's really impressive. Oh, it is. And, you know, and speaking of the con congressional reporters, they are, we are so proud of them as an association, the way they had just recently represented us, you know, in the, in everything that had happened last week. But, um, you know, you have to think also about not only are they, they're walking around the room because people don't like to speak into microphones and <laughs> be able to hear them. So they get up close to them. That's how they're doing that or why they're doing that. But it's also the stress. So imagine of everything that happened, you know, the, the threat that happened earlier in that day, which adds an extra layer of tension. You have, this is uh, our American history happening right before our eyes. You uh, have to get it right. Yes. Exactly. It will be talked about for forever. We'll look back at, at this time, this point in our, you know, history. And, you know, and so reporters being responsible for all that, it's really a heavy, um, it's a lot of pressure, actually. Right. Um, we make it look easy and you think we're <laughs> quiet and we're walking around and it's no big deal, but it really is. Um, we're quietly right. sometimes crying or dying inside. <laughs> so talking about an added level of pressure, um, is there any change to the procedure when a witness requires an interpreter? Um, there's not really, uh, uh, there's not really any change except for oftentimes we find ourselves frustrated with interpreters ourselves um, because, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't speak fluent Spanish, but I know enough to get by. And, you know, so I know when they're not, they're not translating verbatim and mm -hmm. so crazy because I need to take down everything verbatim. And I know that they're not, you know, and some languages aren't literal translation. So there is that. And then, you know, interpreters that are not speaking in the first person, you know, they're, they're not. So that means that they're mm -hmm. not saying exactly what they're saying. And so it makes the transcript kind of, it feels messy to us a lot of times. It's so hard putting it together, actually, because we've got to put the interpreter in colloquy when they're not addressing, when they're not acting as the witness, 
So when the interpreter is acting as the witness, it would come out as an answer in the transcript. But then when they are inserting themselves, then they are now colloquy and it's, you know, and, and they're not meaning to be in colloquy, but they're, they're not twisting it in their mind and what's coming out of their mouth is not exact. So it's, it, it's, they're easier to take down because obviously things are going slower. Usually there's not simultaneous translation going on. Simultaneous means that let's say the lawyer's asking the question and the, the interpreter would be simultaneously interpreting, which does allow for the proceedings to go a bit faster. Um, usually it's that the lawyer's asking a question or the witness is answering, and then they wait for the interpreter to ask the question and answer. So it, it doubles the amount of time it takes to take down a proceeding um, or to actually take a deposition. Um, so it's actually, it would you'd think it would be easier, but I think we'd prefer to just get in and get everybody talking and let's this up and I'll go home. <laughs> More questions come to mind as we're talking. I'm thinking about this because one of our Florida Bar member benefits isn't you can pull up by language and date and on an app yeah. like book and interpreter and all these different languages. And we saw the woman who runs that company do her pitch. It was really interesting. Do you ever get um, request for a Spanish speaker court reporter because um, maybe they're going to do like it's a deposition and like the parties only speak Spanish and the maybe the attorneys are comfortable. You're in South Florida. So does that happen where it is done no. in Spanish? No? No. Mm-mm. Okay. No. Um, the only time I've seen that happen, and usually it's when a court reporter is brought abroad, like in, um, okay. I think it's Puerto Rico. I think that their judicial system, they take things down in Spanish, actually. And it's actually, a, it's not a verbatim record. It's a gist of, I think that they actually just write things down normally court system. Um, so the court reporters have been brought over for things like that because they're not going to, it's a court system. They're not going to bend to, uh, you know, making a record, you know, in English mm-hmm. purposes. So, but um, no, but the thing is with hiring interpreters. So we also provide interpreters and translation. Translation would be if you had, documents in a case that were in a foreign language uh, yeah you would prov- you should provide them to reporting firm provides that service you should provide them to them get an estimate first and then um, figure out whether it's cost effective for you to go forward um, sometimes we're involved in that just even serving subpoenas abroad because then we'll have to translate those documents going there and coming back um, but with interpreters so I never have an issue with interpreters um, because we're using people that are geared to the legal profession because it's one thing to understand language, but it's a different thing to act um, or to handle a legal proceedings appropriately because those things that I was describing really shouldn't happen with, mm-hmm. you know, with professionals. And I understand it gets tricky sometimes. You can have a lot of counsel and the situation can be tense. So, you know, of course, mistakes happen. Not We're human. Right. That's okay. perfect. Okay. My next question is, of course, um, like many listeners, I've watched too many dramatic courtroom scenes in movies and shows. So I have to ask, when the judge says that testimony must be, quote, stricken from the record, do you actually still have it all as part of your record or is, does something happen? Do you just make a note that, like, don't include this when I transcribe it or what happens there? No, it stays in the record. Judge is just making the statement. And so what happens is, is basically on an appellate review, 
I guess they will make a decision not to or to ignore that portion of the record. The only thing, I mean, they could get together, council could get together with the judge and everybody could agree for something to be completely taken out of the record. And that would be fine as long as everybody agrees to that. Um, but really, if something is really to be removed from the record, then they should move to seal it um, and actually have it physically taken out of the record. But in a sealing, what happens is, let's say it's a portion of testimony that's being sealed. It's actually taken from the court reporter's transcript. A gap is left there. That testimony is then placed into a manila envelope. It's sealed with tape. It's signed across and it can only be opened by the court. Wow. Okay. And that makes a big, a good point when you brought up the appellate court because the jury can't unhear that right. testimony. So obviously the appellate court would want to know what they heard. Um, I've observed a lot of uh, trials and depositions that got very heated. I mentioned family law before. I've also watched murder trials. Um, and the witness and attorney invariably start talking over each other. So how is the court reporter getting that into the record? And is the court reporter allowed to like put up a hand and say... I need you, the, I need the court to pause this and instruct them to stop doing that. What happens with that? So sometimes we can, we can actually trail behind a sentence or two. And when you've been doing it for a while, you there, we do have this ability to kind of compartmentalize what people are saying. And so I can keep track of it to some degree, but when it does get out of hand, it is our duty to, it's a court reporter's duty to speak up because we're not, we're not just tape recorders. We're there to ensure that a record is made. But however, you do get some counsel that, you know, and I get it sometimes, you know, I've got a lot to say if you haven't noticed. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I couldn't imagine taking myself down sometimes. And, you know, people are, their emotions are running high and they just are not going to control themselves. So, you know, the court reporter should interrupt I would say after it gets to the third time, probably stop interrupting and say, you know, the record is what it is. And they've been duly warned. I tell my court reporters to put their comments in the record as well, because we need to make a record that, you know, we asked several times and it continued on. And then there becomes a point at which counsel are responsible for behaving accordingly and ensuring their record is what it is. I mean, we're not bionic. So it's a very tough, it is a very tough thing because it's intimidation. So sometimes it takes reporters getting, you know, building up their courage to learn how to do that. You're interrupting lawyers that are heated. Um, and there is an art to it because you really, it, because once we speak up, we've lost that last sentence we were retaining. So we're fighting that if I speak up, I'm going to lose part. And um, so they should read back what the last of what they had and say, okay, go on from there. Um, but it's also, you have to, a court reporter has to learn how to speak up in a way that is not um, intrusive or insightful. Um, you know, you're not inciting people. Mm -hmm. so I usually, and when I have done it, I just interrupt and say, counsel, I need you to speak one at a time. And that's really like all I say, and especially in a court of law, because, you know, now you're in front of a jury 
you know, I purposely sit with my back to the jury because I mean, you could yawn and have like tears come out of your eyes. I've seen it where in the court reports accused of, you know, having emotions for one side or the other. But so you got to be careful as the court reporter speak up, because if I was to shout at counsel in some way because of my mm-hmm. own frustrations, that has a way of portraying itself in front of the jury. And then the jury may take my side and not like that counsel because of that. So it's a very fine line we're walking as well. And there's an art to it. So so speaking about a court reporter's duty, um, we know that there is no regulatory body uh, in Florida. Um, but are there Florida rules and ethics that court reporters have to be aware of and abide by, like maybe that are established by the NCRA? Or can you tell us about other ethical challenges um, and, and how an attorney should select a court reporter and know that they're familiar with these rules? Okay. So... You see, um, after my name, it had registered professional reporter. That means that I am nationally certified by the National Court Reporters Association. So the National Court Reporters Association, I require my court reporters to be certified. If they don't have their certification, they have a year in which to get it, or they have to be actively seeking it in order to retain working for my firm. Um, because I'm not, I don't need the judiciary to actually set a rule. I can create my own rules for my own firm. But so because I am nationally certified, I do have to abide by NCRA's Code of Professional Ethics. It's part of my certification. So if I were to breach that in some way or a counsel felt that I did something wrong, they could reach out to NCRA and they could file a Code of Professional Ethics complaint. We call it a COPE complaint. And then that will be dealt with by a body within NCRA and accordingly. Now, Florida, each state associate, each state has their own state association as well. NCRA is over everything. And we actually have our own Congress, which is made up of two representatives of each state association. We call it the National Congress of State Associations. So Florida Court Reporters Association They also have a certification. It's called the FPR. But what that is, is it's a one-day ethics course that really basically goes over rules and procedures that govern the state of Florida. It is an excellent course. I actually send some of my employees to it. It's really great. You take a 100-question test at the end of it, and you get your FPR. So if you see FPR after a court reporter's name, then you could file a code of professional ethics complaint with that with the Florida Court Reporters Association or any other state association that you would see a court reporter had was certified. They may it may say CSR or something like that. So you can address it in those venues too. So, but the thing is, is like I said, Florida not requiring certification or licensure. That means that if you have happened to use a court reporter that does not have any certification, then there's nobody to complain to. Right. Then perhaps the you know the Department of Business and Professional Regulations, because most court reporters operate under a business of their own because they're freelance. So I guess you would have some remedy there. Um, so in selecting a court reporter, one I say that I tell counsel when I educate them about the different methodologies that could be sent to them when they're booking a proceeding. I tell them to put it in your notices. If you want a stenographic reporter, put it in your notices, either in the body, put it in the heading, 
because at least you have some recourse that when you do get back a bad record um, or there's some kind of problem with it or it has to be redone because they've sent you a digital, at least you've got something to back you up um, and hopefully make them actually pay for fees and costs that you had to expend in redoing this proceeding. But also you should know who you're doing business with, really. You know, and so so often I've right, I've been building a firm my whole career, even long before I opened up my firm, I was building relationships in the community. Um, and really you should know who you're doing business with. Um, it should be somebody who is trusted because obviously somebody could send a firm could send in some are put, they put, it's they're putting profits before people or profits before the record. So you book my firm, you're only going to get stenographic reporters, you know, hundred percent loyal to the record. Obviously, could you imagine if I did something unethical as I happen to be the president of the <laughs> association, that would be a real, that probably yeah. is, but um so, and really you should be looking to hire certified people. So I'd say first, like govern yourself with putting stenographic in your notices and demanding at minimum that. And actually I've always suggested to lawyers that you should have relationships with court reporters. Mm-hmm. Think that, you know, no matter how much the corporatization of court reporting has expanded over the last 20 years, I still think it's a very personal business. It's tense situations you know, to be able to know who's in that room with you. And I say, you know, every once in a while, you need to be able to reach out to that person and say, I need this or I need that. And obviously it's not a perfect world, just like probably lawyering is not a perfect world. There's probably people that, you know, make mistakes or don't act in conformance with their responsibility to uphold the law. Um, And so there are court reporters as well, too. And, you know, you don't, you just don't want to get a bad one where, you know, you're going to, you know, not have a record. Right. I want to pivot a little bit because at the top of the show, we talked about everyone having to adjust to the realities of the pandemic. And so there was an article in the Florida Bar News this past June entitled Taking Effective Remote Depositions. And I know Carla will post that under this episode on our website if you want to read that. Um, I assume that even if an attorney knew the ins and outs of setting up a regular deposition, much has now changed. So this article stated that most court reporting companies offer effective remote capabilities, often through Zoom or WebEx, and that it is equally important to select a vendor that can provide related software for exhibits to be uploaded, managed, and shared. Can you talk about what you've seen that's working best now um, for all of the parties if they have to be in different rooms? I hadn't even considered the exhibit part of it. Yeah, so um, we've been offering the remote for a decade. Um, so I always saw that that's where things were going. It's the only way we were going to be able to get time back in our day. So, but the the problem is, is the great thing about the pandemic is it forced everybody to pivot. And traditionally, I've seen the law practice can be 10, 20 years behind um, the state of the current technology. We are all stuck to our yellow pads and things like that. But um, but so that's been the great thing because this is going to allow us to have more time back in our day and, and things like that. But as is true with the law, just like coffee makers that evolve and become better products so they don't burn people, so is it in this area as well. 
So the law on technology hasn't really been written yet. And so there are things that you definitely can assume are best practices, but there's just no rules yet. You should have um, remote proceedings should be booked by the court reporting firm or court reporter that you're utilizing. It should not be set by one party or the other because in the administrative settings for um, software like Zoom or WebEx, like we have an enterprise account. Maybe a law firm has an enterprise account as well. But there are administrative settings on the back end that you can program in to say, you know, allow one-to-one chatting. Well, you don't want one-to-one chatting because you don't want people Mm -hmm. this. Um, You know, allowing for recording. The person who's controlling the Zoom has the ability to mute all attendees. Well, you don't want in an argument breaking out and one council having that kind of ability or the ability to end the entire meeting. There's a whole host of things like that, that that's why one party, one adversarial party should not be booking that. And it should come from the court reporting firm. Um, We actually, even though we had been doing it for 10 years, and even as part of NCRA, I was at the time I was chair of the technology committee, was one of the first to speak on the subject, start teaching it to court reporters. It, it, It opened up the pivot in the pandemic opened up a whole Pandora's box of new and unique issues. Um, So much so that we felt the need to develop a remote litigation academy that's part of our website um, because lawyers were seeking information, right? Where everybody was trying to figure out how to get back to work because they got people to pay, bills to pay. And um, now they had to do it this whole new way. And change is uncomfortable. And the pandemic has certainly amped things up on the uncomfortability level. We found that people were really looking for information, things like how to, you know, even the use of passwords, there was all this information about whether it's a secure environment and mm-hmm. and then exhibits. Exhibits still remain an issue to this day. It's been one of our biggest fears um, because, you know, we're not there and in the presence of the documents to take possession of them. So we have a there. I have a whole. It's a long list of things that you should know about exhibits, but not the least of which you know if you're going to deal with documents remotely, you should probably have them Bates numbered and shared in advance. If people are going, if counsel is going to have something um, marked on, like a witness is going to document where a leak is happening or draw an accident scene diagram or any of those things, we're really concerned about people saving them because once you mark on a Zoom screen, um, if you don't save it, it's going to be gone forever. So we have solutions like that where you can do it in Adobe and start making edits without doing it utilizing the Zoom platform. Um, Things like a contract. We all know that in certain, um, in litigation, when there's an issue over something like a contract, there usually are seven iterations of a contract. You know, by the time it goes back, So we want to make sure that the contract that was being testified to by the witness at the time of the proceeding ends up being the same contract that's provided after the fact to everybody that ends up marked. So there's things that you just got to, you got to think differently. Um, So if somebody's sharing a document that wasn't provided in advance, then you should make them share it immediately. There's ways to share directly right through the Zoom platform and it goes to everyone. Um, if somebody's marking something, should force them to share all that immediately too. I can tell you that the court reporters are really struggling in this environment because we're we're 
proceedings are ending and we're being told that um, the documents, the exhibits are going to be provided to us and we end up spending weeks um, tracking them down and trying to get them provided to us. Um, you know, I guess people get busy or, you know, it's not a function that a lawyer normally handles. I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not on that side, but um, I'm sure it's something that their paralegal or legal assistant would normally be dealing with. And, but they're stuck with it because they were in the deposition and they've marked these things. Um, so anyway, I, I suggest using Bates number documents because at least then after the fact, you can easily identify those. I think that that's a pretty good highlight. Exhibits is a, is a, it's a long list of things, um, but I think that, that those give pretty good highlights. But you make a good point. There's some prep that needs to go in ahead. And I like right. that um, you can look to a good court reporting company to, to help you set things up in the very best way. And I know exactly. you, you can't speak to every court reporting firm in the state, but at least with you, do you have certain court reporters that you specifically use for Zoom? Is there some kind of Zoom certification? Um, are all your court reporters able to use Zoom or WebEx or another online platform to participate and schedule these proceedings? How should an attorney go about requesting that officially? So um, the lawyer, when they're setting up a remote proceeding, they should request Zoom. Zoom is being used 95. Actually, in Florida, I would say it's 99% of the time. At the start of the pandemic, there were some security concerns. I don't think that it, the security issues are really coming more in the school environment, the school pivoting and, and password issues. It really, Zoom is actually a very safe platform. Believe it or not, uh, Zoom was actually a break off of WebEx some years ago. The developers left and they started Zoom. They had a different path and Zoom, and they were on target because Zoom is a, is a better platform. It's easier to use. WebEx is very bandwidth intensive. So mm-hmm. things are coming out okay, but they're really not. But court, So we do provide things in WebEx because some have mandates to use WebEx. You will actually find different judicial systems around the country. Some whole court systems use Teams. Um, they use different things. So you could have you could actually come across those different types of platforms and should familiarize yourself with them because of the pandemic and because of all of those unique situations that I mentioned uh, that we noticed were coming about, we discovered a real need to I, mean, I think our all of our court reporters are really top notch, but there there was a level of proficiency with certain types of proceedings that made a remote proceeding much more complex in a technological way than others. And so what we did was we developed our own in-house certification program. We developed all how-to videos on different types of things because court reporters are now, we're controlling the proceedings because they should be set up with us. And let's, in this, for the sake of this discussion, they are. So now you have the court reporter who is the host of that proceeding. Now there needs to be a discussion between counsel and their client so now they have to set up a meeting room for them to go into that's private and secure. You have to be able to lock that meeting. You have to understand that locking that meeting may not allow others in later. So there's these technical aspects that they really do need to understand to facilitate proceedings going forward. Obviously, our first responsibility is to the record and is always to the record. Um, but we, we don't want things canceling. We want things to move. You know, we're partners mm-hmm. and it's really... So um, we developed our own certification, and we um, we have we we do an on um, we do an in person a remote t- 
test. It's not a, a hundred question test or anything like that. Uh, we go through, we make them um, do certain things within the platforms and then we grade them, we score them on it. So they can achieve either, either a basic certification, an advanced certification or an expert certification. I am in the interest of time going to turn over everything that I've built within my firm to the National Court Reports Association. That's not even out for public knowledge. Um, but I'm going to turn it over to them um, so that we can we can take what I've done in my own firm and certify court reporters across the country so that counsel can have some level of assurance that um, court reporters are proficient in the technicalities that a certain remote deposition or hearing may require. Thank you for that. Um, and I, I asked that question because I was poking around your website when I was researching oh. you. <laughs> so I knew that something existed. Um, so to close out the conversation, I want to talk about the NCRA's upcoming February event. Uh, can you tell us what happens during court reporting and captioning week? Our industry struggles to some degree because we're the quiet person in the corners of courtrooms and deposition rooms that never speaks up. Sometimes I refer to myself as the very cool proverbial fly on the wall. Um, so, and because of that, there's not enough people that know about this great profession. And so we're trying to get the word out. And so this grassroots effort we don't have enough money that it would cost us to spend on a marketing campaign that reaches the millions of people that we do as a united grassroots effort across this country. Literally, we do track it with a hashtag, so we get millions of hits. So basically, we NCRA has put together all kinds of information for our court reporters, and we're having them make some things for our clients to use to support court reporters during this week. And so there will be press releases going out. We try to get proclamations in every state from every governor. I know I'm reaching out. Joanne, um, who's with my firm, I think you know, um, she's reaching out to, um, you know, all kinds of, I've got, I have a meeting with um, Montana's governor uh, next week uh, to talk about court reporting, captioning week and remote litigation, but it's all about that. So you all allowing me this opportunity to speak about um, my great profession and educating lawyers about the technicalities of what we do is so important. That's the message um, because we want to be like the best partners we can with the lawyers that we work with and their teams, the paralegals and legal assistants. And the only way to do that is to have more open discussion about the nuances of what we do um, because we are such an integral part of the judicial system. So really, this is just where you're going to see Facebook and Instagram and everything is going to blow up that week. And you'll see our Facebook pages will change. And we do anything and everything we can to talk about court reporting. Excellent. And I know Carl will put a link up to that yes. so that uh, our listeners can check that out as well. I have to say, this was so much more interesting. I've been in the legal world more than 20 years, and I... I have such a deeper respect now. I was always curious about what was going on with the court reporter, but I'm picturing um, an old time illustration of a one man band like symbols between your knees and a drum and a horn and a, you know what I mean? Uh, to know that you guys are 
have learned this skill with your hands, but all the other things that are going on. It's a good thing Carla and I do a podcast. We're not great at holding our faces still. So that's another skill you got going. So you're not influencing the proceedings. <laughs> um, but but really, this is very, very interesting. It looks like we've reached the end of our program. And I want to thank you so much, Christine Phipps, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me and giving me this opportunity. It absolutely made my week. So if our listeners have questions about court reporting and captioning week or your company, where can they find more information, a, a website or that you can give us for them to follow up? You can um, contact me at Christine at FipsReporting.com. If you go to my website, um, www.FipsReporting.com, I keep my cell phone number on my website. I believe in personal business. Um, and my email address is up there. If you have specific questions about the National Court Reports Association, I can be reached at president at ncra.org. Um, so any one of those avenues. And you, if they know somebody interested in the career of court reporting, please send them my way. <laughs> Excellent. So if you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar podcast brought to you by Legal Fuel, the practice resource center of the Florida Bar. I'm Christine Bilbury. And I'm Carla Eckhart. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalFuel.com. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the Florida Bar's podcast via iTunes, Google Podcast, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center Legal Fuel on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by the Florida Bar. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.